Amen. Mark chapter 15, I'll read the first few verses and then give some background and introduction. Verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. The whole council meaning the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. The, then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. So if you haven't been here in a few weeks, or you're just here for the first time, or you're visiting, you're stepping into the middle of the trial and execution of Jesus Christ. There is great detail from all four gospel writers, and as a matter of fact, no one gospel writer gives the full account, so you have to kind of piece things together to get the full account of the six stages of the trial of Jesus Christ, the most important trial in human history. Three stages were before the religious leaders. We came through that last week, and now three stages of the trial uh, transferred over to the Roman authorities. So again, six stages to the trial of Jesus, that will lead to his ultimate uh, execution as a common criminal, as a hated criminal, as a man cursed by God on the, the um, extremely horrific cross that we will learn about uh, as we go through this. Jesus is silent through much of this. He, he answers nothing. Remember, he had spent that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, praying, sweating drops of blood. He had resolved things with God in prayer first. And that's what's given him the ability to endure the things he's doing uh, and he's going through here. As I read through this, I mean, I, I got to tell you that as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, I get to spend lots of time in the Word and, and I'm so blessed by that and it's so challenging to me personally because, you know, the, the greatest way to learn something is to teach it to somebody else. So if you've ever gone, you know, I just, my Bible time isn't real good. I don't, just don't spend a lot of time. Then Tom would be glad to have you in the children's ministry. Because when you, when you study it for yourself, you study it on one level. But when you study it knowing you've got to relay the information to somebody else, you have to learn it on a different level. And so as I spent time in this, I just thought, you know, what, Lord, what, what, what do I need to know? What, I mean... I've been through this, I've been a Christian for 21 years, you know. I've been over this story. Every year we talk about the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection. And I just was, Lord, what, is, what do you want me to see this year? And, and the only thing that, that came to me as I, as I asked the Lord that question, I just thought, I am so honored to serve such a God, such a man as Jesus Christ, who was willing to do these things on my behalf. If you think about leadership and good leadership, you know, you want to follow someone who's willing to be in the trenches with you, not someone who sits back, you know, in the comfy place, ordering others around. And I just thought if ever there was a man of honor who, who took punishment silently that he didn't deserve, and when's the last time you were falsely accused and how did you feel about it? And how vocal were you about your rights or what you deserved or how wrong and how unjust this was? I mean, we are so vocal when we get, when our rights are not, uh, not, uh, taken into account when, when, we are, when something is ro- done wrongly or unjustly. I mean, we are the first to be loud and demand. And Jesus was silent through the whole thing. He just took it. This is it. He, God in human form. I mean, just amazing. And so I just felt, 
I just felt in a sense of honor to serve him. Like, I am honored to be part of your kingdom. I am honored to serve a man, a God like this. So he goes through the trial, and uh, now that he, he resolved this in the garden, and then remember now, he hasn't had any sleep. It's now morning time. See that in verse 1, in, in the morning. He had the last supper with his disciples. They had gone out to pray. Judas had left to go betray him, and uh, they had prayed in the garden, and then he'd gotten arrested, and then the nighttime trial had happened, this sort of a pre-trial trial with a portion of the, the Jewish authorities were there, and now it's morning time, and it seems the rest of the group has gathered for their morning uh, time of making decision about what do we do. They've condemned him as a group. They've decided he's guilty, but the charges of blasphemy and about claiming to be the Messiah won't cut it with the Romans. And they didn't have, the Jews didn't have the power uh, because they were subject to the Romans. They didn't have the power to carry out the death penalty on their own. So knowing that the, the, the Romans wouldn't really care much about the, the claim that he was a, bla- a blasphemer, that has to do with their own religion. What do the Romans care about that? They had to come up with some other things. So Jesus hasn't had sleep. He's not had food. He's not had water. He's already depleted in that way. And now it's the morning time. And it says that they held a consultation with the elders, the whole council, this thing called the Sanhedrin, 70 men who ruled their nation, religiously speaking. So they bind Jesus, they lead him away and deliver him to Pontius Pilate. For years, uh, many doubted the existence of such a man. Those that doubt the, the um, nature of the Bible have doubted that Pilate existed. There was no record of him until 1961 when in Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima, there was a discovery of a stone plaque with the inscription of the name of Pontius Pilate. And to this day, when we go to Israel, we see that there in in Caesarea by the sea. We see a copy of that, a, a casting of that stone that was discovered. And so we find, again, for those that doubt the Bible uh, or doubt things that are said or things that are understood, uh, always the archaeologist's shovel continues to prove the, uh, the place of the Bible and its accuracy. So Pontius Pilate, he's a governor uh, in that region, and he's come into Jerusalem. He's there overseeing during the Passover time. So they take him to Pilate, and, and evidently, we don't get it here from Mark, but they've already had this, this he's had a discussion with the uh, Jewish leaders already. What do you bring him for? What's he guilty of? Because they needed some charges that the Romans would care about. They accused him of forbidding people to pay taxes to Rome. Well, that's pretty bad, which is not what he ever said. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So it was a false claim there. And the biggest thing was, Luke tells us, that, that he claimed to be a king. Now that gets the Roman authorities a little upset. He's an insurrectionist. He claims to be a king. If he claims to be a king, maybe his intention is then to, to lead the Jews in a, in a rebellion. And there were plenty of those happening at the time. The Jews were very unhappy uh, politically uh, in, in under the Roman rule, so there are always uprisings and those that were against the Roman government. So he says, are you, and the you is emphatic, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. Now the problem was, it was true he's the king of the Jews, but not the kind of king that Pilate would expect him to be or had thought he would be or the kind of king that the Jews had thought he would be. 
Matter of fact, uh, he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And we have to remember that. My kingdom is not of this. We serve a king and a kingdom that transcends this world. If my, if, if my kingdom was of this world, he told him, then my people would fight, then we'd be, we'd be breaking bad on you guys. I mean, we'd be full of swords and we'd be leading a rebellion and there'd be war in Jerusalem if, we were, if my kingdom was of this world. My kingdom's not of, this, not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom in men's hearts. Someday, it will be a kingdom of this earth. It will be on the earth in the millennium. But it starts, that kingdom starts in men's hearts. So if we look around and say, well, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the church? What's wrong with these things? It's so easy to point fingers, isn't it? The question is, does it start in your heart? Or has, has, the, has Jesus Christ set up a kingdom in your heart? Is he ruling and reigning over this five foot ten frame and in this heart and in this mind? That's where the kingdom begins for sure. And by the way, just so you know, Judas at this time has already uh, gone, Matthew tells us, and he has hung himself. Judas has committed suicide. And it's interesting, you think about a guy like, Ju- uh, like Judas, who had traveled with, walked with, discipled by Jesus for three years, but yet still never understood him. He never understood his forgiveness. He never understood the opportunity for reconciliation. He thought, I'd blown it, and there's no way back. He returned, he felt guilty, he regretted it, he gave the money back, but he never came back to Jesus to ask for forgiveness and ended up up hanging himself. It's a horrible story. But we have in contrast the great story of Peter who does get reconciled and that gives people hope that you don't have to end up like Judas, whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is you feel guilty or ashamed about, there is forgiveness in Christ and you can come back to him. Even if you've been away there, so maybe a lot of you maybe been away from the Lord for years and years and years, and you know, you've been out there doing your worldly thing, and you think, wow, I can't go back to church, all that I've done. You can. You can start fresh. You can have a new beginning, absolutely. So Judas has hung himself. Um, Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, we talked about those, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? I mean, see how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. I'm sure this Roman governor, who was very cruel, by the way, I'm sure he was used to seeing people grovel for their lives, to see them begging for for mercy in front of him. And there Jesus sits silently, hearing all the accusations, not uh, defending himself. And Pilate must be thinking, this is so strange. People are usually very fast to defend themselves, beg for mercy, whatever it might be. And Jesus is just silent and he marvels at that. Now he's also, uh, at this point, the second part of the trial happens when he finds out that Jesus is involved with Galilee. He sends him up to Herod and Herod uh, meets with Jesus and wants to see him perform some miracle, wants to see him do a parlor trick of some sort and ends up sending him back to Pilate. So that's the second part of the, the three parts of the trial. Now he, he's going to eventually come back to Pilate. And this is where we pick up the third part of the trial. And we meet a man named Barabbas. His name interestingly means, if you know a little bit about Hebrew, you've been studying your Bible, Bar means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah. 
Simon, son of Jonah. So the word, the little prefix bar, means son of. And if you were here just a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was praying in the garden, he prayed, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. It's an endearing term for Daddy or Father. So when you put those two words together, bar and Abba or Abbas, it means son of the Father. So Barabbas is son of the Father. And many say his first name was probably Jesus. And I'll show you why as we go through. So we have Jesus, son of the Father, and we have Jesus, the real son of the Father. Interesting play on words here. Interesting, I don't think it's coincidence. Barabbas, I call him the luckiest man on earth. (laughs) The luckiest man on earth. This guy is a terrorist. Look at verse 6. Now at the feast, at the Passover, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them. Just an act of kindness toward the Jews uh, to keep them kind of from stirring up too much rebellion. I'll do something nice for them during this time. You know, whenever you get a crowd together, there's a danger. And if, because it's the Passover, you've got hundreds of thousands of Jews flocking into Jerusalem. The, the uh, population of Jerusalem just massively growing at this time. And so anytime you get a, a group of angry, ornery, oppressed people together in one place, you've got, you know, you've got a time bomb. Uh, ticking. And so that's why all the Roman guard is there. That's why the governor is there. And, and that's why some of these things are happening at this time, including this practice of giving, releasing a criminal back to the Jews. Of course, they, they'd love to have released to them someone who was an insurrectionist, someone who hated the Roman government. That would be appealing to them. So uh, they re- they would, he would release whoever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas. We talked about his name who was chained with his fellow rebels. Well, what was he guilty of? What did he do? We know he was guilty of insurrection. He's a rebel, means he was a political activist. He was probably what they call a zealot or part of the zealot party. They would carry uh, knives under their their, their cloaks. And then as the crowd was together, anybody that they knew was a supporter of Rome, they would just come through and stab them. They were terrorists. There was no uh, there, there, were, there was no security at the Temple Mount like there is today. There was no uh, metal detectors that you walk through. They would carry their swords and they would kill people. And he, he had, look at verse 7, they had committed murder in the rebellion. So there had been evidently a recent rebellion in that area. It had been squashed by the Romans. He had been captured and accused of murder. And then the multitude crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he always had done for them. So they're, they're asking him to release a prisoner. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate is, is politically squeezed. I mean, there's so many things that God has orchestrated that come together at this time. It's like the perfect storm for God's will to be accomplished according to how he wanted it to be accomplished. And and so everything is coming together. Pilate, just to to briefly summarize, had made some political decisions regarding the Jews that had gotten him in a lot of hot water. The Jews had complained and had had risen up, and he'd just done some stupid things as a political leader. Political leaders never do stupid things. We know that. So he'd done some stupid things. His job was on the line. He was a career politician, and He'd made some of these bad decisions that had got him in trouble. His, his job, if there's an uprising in Jerusalem now, and these Jews, if they go back and complain to the Roman authorities ab- above him, if they go over his head, so to speak, he's going to lose his job. So he is torn. He knows that Jesus is innocent. 
He knows they didn't turn. Look, now let's be, <laughs> let's be honest. The, he knows the Jews. And they're coming, presenting this guy as a political insurrection. We, we wanted to turn him over to you because he's a rebel. He's, he, remember, they're, they're accusing Jesus of claiming to be a king, and, which is exactly what they wanted, the Jews did. So Pilate's no dummy. He sees, he's reading between the lines. He sees that they're not all of a sudden overcome with loyalty to Rome. And so we just had to hand over this guy to you because he's just a, you know, against the Roman government. That's baloney, and he knows it. His wife's had a dream. Pilate's wife had a dream that, she should be very care- that he should be very careful with this man, Jesus, that he, that, to not have anything to do with him. And he's an innocent man. So all these things playing in his mind, and so he's looking for an opportunity that the, the religious leaders maybe want Jesus to be condemned, but maybe the people will help Pilate's cause out. So he says to the people, hey, do you want me to release to you this guy who says he's the king of the Jews and who you say is the king of the Jews? Because Pilate knew that they didn't turn him over because of loyalty, but why did they turn him over? What's it say right there? Envy. Envy. There's a lot of interesting motivation as we look through this passage. I like to look behind the surface into what motivates people. I mean, that to me is one of the most fascinating things in my own life. Like, what motivates me to do the things I do? And you can always ask yourself those questions about the things you do. Why do I do this? Why do I say that? Why do I enjoy this? Try to go a little deeper with yourself. There's a man I saw, he did a little talk as an accomplished businessman. I love the way he ran his business. He's one of those guys that thinks outside the box. And I love to see what makes people tick like that. And he has this policy in his life where he asks himself three whys. So when he wants to do something, he'll ask himself, why? And then he'll answer that question. And then he asks himself, why? To the answer to that question. And then if he can do that three times, that pretty much tells him what, you know, which direction to go with his decision. So he was um, speaking up in, uh, at MIT, I believe. He was speaking about business and whatnot and, and about his business. And he had gone for a walk. I guess there's a cemetery near there. And he had gone for a walk in the cemetery and... Um, he was wondering how he would be remembered. And then he asked himself the first question, why? Why do I even want to be remembered? Why do I care about being remembered? Who, why, why, should I, why should my kids, you know, why, why should I do these things? And he began to ask himself these questions, why? And they're important questions, and they indicate motivation. So we have the motivation of Pilate. We'll see, he, wanted to, he was a people pleaser. He had to be for his political power. But we'll see the, the envy that is the motivation behind the people here. The, the, the chief priest handing him over because of envy. Galatians 5.1 says envy is a, is a work of the flesh, not fruit of the Spirit. And I wonder how many people, maybe sitting here, how many of us have made decisions recently motivated by envy? Let me put it to you this way. Envy can be the displeasure at another one's good. You see someone else doing, getting, getting something good, doing good, and you envy the, the green-eyed, the green monster, green-eyed monster of envy. And it could be the miserable trait of being glad of someone else's misfortune. The miserable trait, I like that was a quote from a book that I read. The miserable trait of being glad at someone else's misfortune. Those are ter- Would you agree with me? Those are terrible motivators for action. That's no, no, that's no motivation. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the Spirit produces that in your life. If there's envy, that's not wisdom from above. James says that's wisdom from below, from the pit of hell. Think about Cain and Abel. It was Cain that was envious of his brother. His, his sacrifice was accepted, Abel's was, and Cain's was rejected. And so God says, you know, their sin is crouching at your door. It wants, to, it wants to devour you, but you have to rule over it. And this is an interesting thought, interesting question that is asked of Cain. If you do right, will you not be accepted? If you do right, won't it, instead of getting angry at what they're doing and why things are going good for them, why don't you do what's right? And things will go good for you. But we don't think that way, do we? We don't typically respond that way. We just want to blame other people and be lazy. And envy creeps in and envy... So be careful if you find yourself asking yourself why. Why do I feel that way about that person? Why am I, why am I struggling with those emotions? If you get down to envy, the place for that is repentance and confession. Oh, Lord. I don't want to be someone who envies that way. I want to just be keeping your eyes on, keeping my eyes on you, Lord, and not other people. So Pilate knew all of this, but the chief priests, they, they see possibly Jesus slipping through their fingers, and the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews. I mean, wait a second. If I'm going to release this murderer, I mean, imagine demanding the release of the Boston Marathon bomber. In this crowd frenzy, the crowd is no longer thinking for themselves. They're caught up in the frenzy. The, the leaders have, have kind of stirred them up. And nobody's thinking for themselves. Their crowd mentality has, has kicked in. And now Pilate is just, he's caught. And he says, well, if I release Barabbas, what am I supposed to do with Jesus? And the, the answer is horrifying. So verse 13 says, they cried out again, crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, he's an innocent man. Look at what the Pilate says. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, crucify him. There's no answer to his question. There's no charges that are given. Don't ask us what he's done. We just want to see him crucified. And we'll talk way more than you probably ever cared about to know uh, as we talk about crucifixion going through the end of this chapter. So I'm going to leave some of that, the details of that for another time, just to know that this is the most horrific human punishment probably ever devised in the history of the world. And, and we'll talk more about that. But it is, um, I mean, you can imagine sitting in a courtroom and hearing that you've been given the death penalty and knowing you'll have time for, you know, for appeals and you'll sit on death row for years. In, in the Roman government, once the charges were given, once the testimony was given, once the charges were made, the execution was carried out immediately. And so this is, this is amazing. They cried out, crucify him. What has he done? They cried out all the more, crucify him. And so verse 15 says, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd. Notice there's another poor motivation. 
to gratify or satisfy other people. Now, he knows what's right to do, but he is caught. You ever felt that way? You ever been like caught between a rock and a hard place? Like you know what's right to do, but it's going to cost you something to do it, and you're not sure if the price for doing it is really worth it to do what's right. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible feeling to be in that situation. And Pilate, on one hand, because of these political decisions, he knows he can't afford for them to, to, up, to rise up and cause a stir if he, he could lose his job. But on the other hand, he knows he's got an innocent man there that he's about to send to death. And I'm not accusing Pilate of having much of a conscience, but it seems that, that in his dealings with Christ, he sort of does. He sort of, his conscience is a little bit pricked over all this. His wife's dream, his, the, the behavior of Jesus through all this. But he wants to gratify the crowd. Be careful, especially if you're in any kind of leadership place. I have to be careful. We have to be careful of making decisions based on people's pressure. And let me tell you, in church, there's no lack of that. That's one of the hardest things I think to face in leadership is you've got all these voices coming into your life and you're desperately, as a pastor or as a, as a leader in ministry, you're desperately trying to hear from the Lord. Lord, I want to hear from you. And, and I've had many situations, many pressures um, where you know, you've got to know the word of God and you've got to stand on that. The only way you're going to be able to stand in the face of peer pressure is if you have the word of God. And I look around here, I see a lot of young folks sitting in here. Let me tell you, the only way you're going to stand in the face of peer pressure a lot of kids lose their virginity because of peer pressure. Not because they were interested in sex, so to speak, but just because there was a lot of pressure to do it. A lot of kids get involved in drugs and this and that because of peer pressure. Because, well, you want to gratify the crowd. Come on, just, just, just one puff, you know, just, just one time. And everybody is, the pressure is on, and so you give in, you cave. And I don't know, man, I've, I've, you know, we've all been there. But gratifying and satisfying other people is a lousy, lousy motivation for a way to live. Lousy motivation for a way to live. Um, we should be hopefully strong enough, and if, if you're not, you know, just a constant prayer. Lord, make me strong enough to stand on your word. David said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Fantastic. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. Can you imagine Barabbas? I mean, this was a dead man. The cross that Jesus is going to hang on was designed for Barabbas. And so we have this very real picture of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, in that the guilty criminal condemned to death goes free while the innocent takes the punishment for the, and takes the place of the one who was guilty. That's the, that's the gospel. It, if it wasn't Barabbas, it'd have been me. It'd have been you. What am I accused of? I was accused of rebellion against God. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't clear. I mean, to most people, they don't even pick up on that stuff because they don't know what God wants, what God doesn't want, who he is, what he does. They don't know anything about God, so they can't, they don't know what's going on in your heart. They don't know what, that, that you're in rebellion against God by living in a sinful lifestyle not just about being a good person or a bad person it's about are you for or against god are you following him or rebelling against him every time sin is rebellion sin is rebellion it's rebellion against god and so i would certainly 
have been accused, even though outwardly, good life, good job, nice guy, all that. Uh, But in my heart, not interested in God, not interested in what he said. I was a rebel. I was a murderer. You ever been angry at someone in your heart? Jesus said even those motivations are sinful. So that was me. That was my cross. It was your cross. And we got to go free because Jesus hung on that cross for us. So Barabbas, the luckiest man on earth. Can you? I wonder if he stuck around. You think he stuck around? Because remember, Jesus is going to be crucified straight away. You think uh, Barabbas followed that parade as Jesus will be paraded through the streets of Jerusalem outside to where he would be crucified to Calvary or Golgotha? You think Barabbas walked along and watched? Do you think Barabbas looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and said, that should have been me. I deserve that. I was the one that was guilty. I mean, we know the other two guys, they're probably good. Man, can you talk about unfair? Here's these other two guys who were in the rebellion with him and they get hung on the cross and Barabbas goes free. Talk about unfair. And the one guy, even he knows this guy is innocent, speaking of Jesus. I don't know. We don't hear much more about Barabbas. We don't have anything more about Barabbas after this. I bet he did. I- I'm guessing he followed along. I'm guessing he watched. I wonder if he got saved. I don't know. If he didn't, it's a shame, isn't it? And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So we have to spend just a minute talking about scourging Uh, This would oftentimes precede being crucified. Uh, It would severely, severely weaken, if not kill, the person who was being scourged. The Jews had a rule. You could only be uh, flogged uh, 39 times, 40 minus 1. They believed 40 would kill you. So they would take you just up to the edge of death through the scourging. But the Romans didn't have that rule. And so they would take the person, the criminal who was to be scourged or whipped, you know, talk about, you think you got a whooping when you were growing up. Jesus got a whooping. Uh, two men, and I'm sure they weren't tiny little meat guys. They picked the biggest and the strongest guys to be lickterns. That was where we get the term, taking your licks. The lickturn was the one who handled the flagrum. Uh, the flagrum was a little short whip made of leather rope or, or leather bands. It had knots in it with pieces of metal pieces of bone and, or pieces of glass or pieces of, and little balls of bronze. And so as this thing traveled down the arm and from, the, from the, the flinging of the arm of the lictern to the back of the criminal, it would pick up speed as a whip does and those, the lead, lead balls or the bronze balls would then cause deep bruises and the glass and the bone would cause cuts and, and actually ribbon the skin of the back. I mean, it's a horrible thing to think of. And some of the flagrums, the, the whip that they used, had a hook on the end, which they called affectionately the scorpion. And so as that would go in, uh, lick at, I mean, think of this one time. I get a splinter, and I can't even concentrate. I've got to get that thing out of there. I mean, it's a little teeny little splinter, you know? I gotta, it's killing me. I've got to get it out of there. You can't imagine... Now, the purpose of this, which is why they were particularly zealous about delivering these licks, was to get a confession. So as you were being uh, scourged, whipped, if you confessed, 
and then gave away the names of all those that were in cahoots with you, in the rebellion with you, then they would ease up on you a little bit. And I'm telling you, if ever there was a time when you wanted the, the pain to ease, it would be right then. So, uh, again, many say, and I think rightfully so, had Jesus sold out then, had he, Jesus wanted to ease his own pain, he would have had to give away the name of us. It's his fault. It's he's, he's the one. She's the one. It wasn't me. I'm innocent. There's the ones that are, that are guilty. But he was silent. He took it. And so they would tie him to tie the hands to the post. The two Roman lictors would, would begin to deliver the whipping, waiting for a confession. Jesus remains silent as a lamb before his slaughterers through this whole thing. He is being silent. And uh, the, the damage, the medical damage to his body is almost unimaginable. The, uh, eventually, the, the whip would get through the outer layer of skin, blood flowing, uh, the inner organs, the musculature would be exposed, and the back would just be ribboned beyond recognition. The back and even the shoulders area. And if you've seen The Passion, have you seen The Passion movie? That, for me, it was just so realistic. And I don't think I would have gotten through that movie if I didn't know the end of the story. I mean, if that was how it ended, it would have left just a huge pit in my stomach. I still, it's, it's baffling to me how people do these things to one another. So they scourged him. I asked you to mark Isaiah 53, if you would go there with me. Now, Isaiah you know, was written many, many years before Jesus. The number 400 is coming to my brain, but don't quote me on that. I can't remember how how long it was before Jesus that uh, Isaiah wrote. But suffice it to say, a long time. And at this time, scourging and these kind of things were not well known. And crucifixion was not well known. Crucifixion had come out of... Um, uh, the ancient Assyrians, they had done impaling where they would just, you know, plop you down on a pole through your whole body. And then they'd leave you on the beach or on the, on the land to just be eaten by buzzards. Isn't that lovely? And then crucifixion sort of came out of that. But look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah describing, maybe if your Bible has headings, mine says the sin-bearing servant. There is this servant in Isaiah that Isaiah describes who is not gonna, who, who's going to be a suffering servant. And this is why Isaiah 53 is such an important chapter because it, it tells all of this contributing and, and all this part of Jesus taking on the sin, all, whatever humankind could muster up to lay on him. Betrayal, denial, alone, loneliness, you name it. And it was being, all the sins amassed of humankind all being laid on him at this time. And then after he was scourged, they delivered him up to be crucified. We'll just go a little bit farther. Look at verse 16. So the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. This is the judgment hall. This is the governor's residence when they're there in Jerusalem. This is Herod's palace in Jerusalem is where this would have happened. Uh, There's a lot of question when we go to Jerusalem we go to this place uh, called Antonia, the Antonia Fortress, which is where the soldiers would have stayed uh, when they were in Jerusalem. And some question which place it was that's called the Praetorium. Was it Herod's Palace or was it the Antonia Fortress? Um, but whatever it is, we don't need to know. 
he called it the, this the praetorium. It's the place where the governor was residing. He's there for judgment. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And that's again, it's a mock worship. So they're setting him up, oh, some kind of king you are. They're totally bullying him, totally teasing him, mocking him. He is just barely alive. No food, no water. He's dehydrated. He's been bleeding. Who knows how much he's covered. He's not even recognizable as human. He's been spit on. His beard has been ripped out. He's now got this crown, this mock crown of thorns shoved into his head. He is probably well into shock by now. Not, not hard to say what exactly. He is in and out of consciousness in some ways, possibly. Uh, and there they are. I mean, his, you know how that feeling is when the world is kind of happening around you and you're sort of in a daze, in a fog, and just in pain. And, and they're mocking him and teasing him and, and setting him up as a... And this is, this is the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the one that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But at this time, he doesn't look like it. And you cannot always judge things by what you see happening right now, even in your own life. Even in your own life, things are not, do not always stay as they are today. And at this point, it seems like Jesus is defeated. It seems like he is a joke. And let me tell you, to some people today in our world, Jesus is a joke. He's a myth tantamount to Santa Claus or fairies and leprechauns. But let me tell you, someday it is going to be no joke. When we see him coming in the clouds, when we see him return, it is going to be no joke. And so I'm willing to wait and recognize that in the world we live in, if, they, if, if he suffered, if he was rejected, if he was crucified, that they're going to do the same thing to me, his followers. They're going to do this. If he's teased, if he's mocked, if, if he's bullied, guess what they're going to do to us? The same thing. And that's why the Bible says, look, becoming a Christian, count the cost. Count the cost, because many of you, like Pilate, caught between a rock and a hard place. Well, I, I, I know I can't not believe, but sometimes the cost of believing is more than I'm willing to pay. But you have to make that decision in your heart and be all in or all out. Be hot or cold, but don't hang out in that lukewarm place that's just disgusting. That's why Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. But sometimes you have to count that cost and go, you know, I, I know God is real. I know he exists. I know Jesus is, is God. Uh, Lord, help me to be willing to, to count the cost, to face the cost of being a follower of his. And once you bridge that gap, once you get through it, you're great. You know, you go, I mean, you still doubt and things like that. Doubts come up. Everybody struggles with that. But you've sort of resolved this. And so I'm willing, you know, because right now Jesus is a joke to these guys. They struck him on the head and, be, and with a reed, put a reed in his hand and, and spat on him and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And by the way, these are the guys that Jesus is dying for. He's dying for them. He's dying for the people that think he's a joke. He's dying for the people. He's dying for the, the guy, the, the lictor, and that was taking that, that 
flagrum and, and nailing him with it. And he's dying for him. Duh. And verse 20, when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. One more time, Jesus had been brought before the crowd. Again, Pilate does not want to crucify him. He wants to release him. So he brings him beaten and bloodied before the crowd. He stands there. Maybe you remember the scene from the Passion. He is again, he's, he's marred beyond recognition. And he says, behold the man, Eki homo. That's the name of the place we go. That's, that's the Greek and that's what the name of the church is we go to when we're in Israel to the spot where we celebrate or remember these things. Eki homo, behold the man. He must have looked pitiful, horrible, and hoping that the crowd would be merciful and accept, all right, he's been tortured, he's been scourged, can I release him now? And all the more the crowd said again, crucify him. And so Pilate tried to wash his hands. His blood is not on my hands. Can you really do that? Can you make a decision and go, well, it's not my fault. It was their fault. They made me do it. Can anyone make you do it? If you did it, you did it. Own it. You had a choice. It might have been a hard choice, but you had a choice. And so they said, the Jews say, amazingly, we have no king but Caesar, and let his blood be on us and our children. We take full responsibility. And between this time and, and 70 AD, when the temple's destroyed, the Jews are going to go through it. They're going to end up lined up uh, along the Appian Way, I believe, have, being crucified in, because of rebellions and insurrections. And uh, their city is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. And surely um, they have reaped what they have sown, what they had sown here. But again, whose fault is it? Is it the Jews' fault? Is it the Romans' fault? I mean, who's responsible? Who gets the blame for Jesus being crucified? And I think many of you in here know enough to know that if we were there, we'd have done the same thing. We'd have been in that crowd going, crucify him, crucify him. We'd have been like Pontius Pilate, caught between a rock and a hard place, made the choice to crucify him. We'd have done it and we would, because we, we do the same things now. So who's responsible? I am. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus wasn't put there against his will. He, didn't, he, he, he went there gladly for you and for me, despising the shame, but for the joy that was set before him. He was able to look past the current situation for the joy that came then seated at the right hand of the Father, the joy of obeying his Lord, the joy of seeing you and I come to salvation. Take your pick. There was lots of joy on the other side of suffering. But if you choose to, to let other, other motives operate in your life and, and rule your life, you'll find you won't get that joy. You'll never get there. You'll always experience guilt and fear and shame. And so I challenge you, if you're not um, acquainted with that kind of joy in your life, then maybe you need to despise a little bit of the shame. I'm so ashamed. I'm too, people, I'm ashamed to come to church. I'm ashamed about this. I'm ashamed about what I've done. You know, and, and you might have to deal with a little bit of mocking, a little bit of suffering, a little bit of teasing. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, the author and finisher of your faith, 
who you, you haven't resisted sin to bloodshed. He says, for the joy set before him. That's why he despised the shame. And we get to keep our eyes on him and do the same thing. Amen? And that is why, folks, we'll pick up here um, next week. That is why, as I read this, I said, I am so honored to serve a God who's done this for me. I can't think of someone I'd rather serve. Who else would be worthy of my allegiance and my service than Jesus Christ? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we close and we read these things, Lord, it seems so surreal to us. It's hard for us. We admit in the culture we live in where criminals receive three squares and, and a bed and justice takes so long, and, and these kind of things are seen as inhumane. Lord, it's hard for us even to imagine this on CNN. Hard for us to imagine this trial taking place. So Lord, help us open our minds to, to see what Christ was accomplishing for us on that cross. Lord, that we can be reconciled to you by the work of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we close, as we stand for the final song, um, you know, every day is an opportunity for someone here to say, hey, um, I need this Jesus. I need a new life. I need a new start. And so I want to invite you during the song, after the song, I'll be down here as usual. The prayer room will be open. If envy is an issue, if fear is an issue, if your motives are all messed up, if you feel yourself, you know, just struggling, then we would love to pray for you and uh, talk with you more. Amen? Amen.